series of choices. So far we've looked at what sin is, the effects of sin that are handed down to us as part of the human condition. Sin simply means to miss the mark or fail to reach the goal. And for us, we were designed to honor God and honor people. So that is our goal. And during the course of this series, I made three promises to you. Promise number one, we cast no guilt. You will not be made to feel guilty during this series. Promise number two, you will be challenged because that's the nature of talking about sin. And promise number three, God's grace is bigger than our sin. Any discussion of sin needs to start with that sense of mercy that we have from our Father. That despite our sin, we have reason to hope. Hope that we can be saved and also hope that we can become more free of our sins. So we are looking at these through the seven deadly sins. That's our lens for the choices that we're making. But we're also wanting to work from those vices to their opposite virtues. So last week we diagnosed the deadly sins of sloth and gluttony. They both originate in the mind. So we want to work on moving toward the virtues of diligence and temperance. And to do that, we need to plan and practice how to maintain those virtues in our life. Today, we're tackling another deadly sin and its corresponding virtue. Now, at this point in the series, this point in the summer, I bet I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, I know what Daniel's going to preach about tomorrow. You probably couldn't sleep last night because you were so excited about what you might hear at church in the morning. There's really nothing more exhilarating than coming to church on a weekend in July and hearing a fiery sermon about lust. Am I right? Well, like all the messages in this series, we're not hiding the fact this is challenging. We're holding a mirror up before ourselves, and it isn't always what we want to see. But the only way that we can move forward in hope and expectation of something better is by going deeper into these topics. So to help us with that today, I want to share a story about when I was young, about 10 or 12 years old. And I'm the youngest of five brothers. My brothers have always been some of my best friends. I've always looked up to them in so many ways, to their interests, their charisma, their basketball skills, their good looks, their faith. And I would imitate them every chance that I got. I always wanted to find out what they were into. So around that age, 10 or 12, I went on to the family computer one day and I started looking at the browsing history, and I discovered something that I didn't recognize. And when I clicked on the link, I discovered that it was pictures of naked women. Now, I instinctively knew that I was looking at something I wasn't meant to find. And I can't recall all of the circumstances, but I remember this, that from that moment on, I was hooked. From that young age, the computer became a portal for me. And as I hit puberty and I explored my own sexuality, I found myself drawn over and over again to the endless images and eventually videos that are available online. I knew inherently that it wasn't good for me, but I couldn't seem to help myself either. So what my brothers and I couldn't have known at that young age was just how powerful a forced lust can be. And it can start in so many different ways. That's how it started for me, but for others, Lust can start very innocently. It can be a second glance at someone you're attracted to. It can be lingering in someone's office a little too long or those mindless moments online. It can even just be the daydreaming, playing out the conversations or interactions we have with others. And if this feels uncomfortable to talk about, coming from the guy who's standing up here 
You're right, it is. But it's such an important conversation because lust invisibly fills the room around us, silently expands to fill any space that it's given. Lust is commonly defined as a disordered desire for sexual pleasure. Lust opposes love because it's self-serving. It starts in the mind, and that hiddenness amplifies the corrosive effect on our lives. Lust dehumanizes other people because we want to use them instead of loving them. So we fixate on our own desires without a regard for others. And that devaluing and that objectification of people matters. It matters now in how we treat people, and it matters cumulatively over time as our understanding and our perspective on our shared humanity is lost. So we wrestle with shame and doubt and we lose control if lust goes unchecked. Ultimately, lust steals our integrity. But lust cannot, it will not have the last word. So today I wanna reclaim a good and beautiful gift from our maker. I wanna reclaim our sexuality and recast the antidote to lust because there is profound freedom on the other side of our struggle. So let's start down that road today. To help us diagnose and treat the deadly sin of lust, we first need to look at its root and its effect on our lives. So we're gonna look briefly at a familiar story from scripture, it comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11, and this book largely details the reign of David as king. And that reign started out very promisingly. David ascends to the throne. He's a military leader. He's well-liked. The kingdom expands in his time. David wants to make the God of Israel prominent. He wants to build a temple for him. But eventually, he runs into temptation. He runs into trouble. And it starts with him doing something that he isn't supposed to be doing. At the turn of the year, the time when kings go to war, David sent out Joab along with his officers and all Israel, and they laid waste to the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. David himself remained in Jerusalem. So David's supposed to be out on the battlefield, but instead he's home at his palace, probably a little bored. He's walking around the rooftop, and he spots something. Idleness is a good way for lust to take root. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. She was very beautiful. David sent people to inquire about the woman and was told, she is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite, Jacob's armor bearer. So this is how lust begins, this glance that turns into a longing that goes into the dark parts of our imagination. And it's insatiable if it goes unchecked. And there are moments here that David has checks. He has outs to the thoughts. In fact, they say to him, this is Bathsheba. This is someone's daughter. This is someone's wife. David, this is the wife of one of your soldiers. But despite those warnings, David is about to lose control. Then David sent messengers and took her. When she came to him, he took her to bed and she returned to her house, but the woman had become pregnant. So some translations say that David sent his messengers to get her, but I think took her is the right word for this, because when the king calls, you come. He takes advantage of Bathsheba. He abuses his power by sleeping with her. 
And even though David is a wise and effective leader, lust here causes him to lose all sense of right and wrong. And it's only going to get worse because now that Bathsheba is pregnant, David initiates a cover-up. So David sent a message to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. And when he came, David asked him how Joab was, how the army was, and how the war was going. And Uriah answered that all was well. We don't get much insight into what David is thinking or feeling in this passage, but I have to think from the small talk, he probably doesn't feel real guilty, even talking to Uriah. Instead, David is singularly focused on trying to get himself out of the situation he's put himself into. David then said to Uriah, go down to your house and bathe your feet. Uriah left the king's house and a portion from the king's table was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with the other officers of his lord and did not go down to his own house. So Uriah is so upstanding that he will not even go home to be with his wife because he wants to be in solidarity with the other soldiers that are still out in the field. So David takes it a step further. He says, Uriah, go home, be with Bathsheba. Uriah says, no, I can't do that. So David tries to wine and dine him. He gets him to the point where Uriah is drunk. Still, Uriah will not go home to Bathsheba. So David sends him back out to the battlefield. And then he tells the commander, Joab, this. Place Uriah up front where the fighting is fierce. Then pull back and leave him to be struck down dead. So while Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew the defenders were strong. When the men of the city made a sortie against Joab, some officers of David's army fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. So we talk about these sins being deadly. Here's a moment where that's literally true. The consequences of David's lust are compounding. This man who is after God's own heart, who wrote many of the psalms that we have in our scripture, who wanted to build a temple for God, this wise ruler, good and gracious. Even for a man like David, lust is a powerful foe. It leads in this moment to him being an adulterer, a liar, a schemer, a murderer. And it's easy for us to wag our finger at David and say, how could you let this happen? But many of us know the power that lust can have over us. We lose ourselves in lust. We lose control. And David is totally lost in this moment. And these actions, these bad decisions are just bad decision piling upon bad decision. And David is going to have to own up to what he's done. But instead, this is what he has to say about the situation. David said to the messenger, this is what you shall say to Joab. Do not let this be a great evil in your sight, for the sword devours now here and now there. Strengthen your attack on the city and destroy it. Encourage him. So he tells Joab, what you did to Uriah isn't evil. Basically, stuff happens. Don't worry about it. And this chapter of David's life is capped off with one final act to cover up his indiscretion. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband had died, she, she mourned her Lord. But once the mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her into his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But in the sight of the Lord, what David had done 
was evil. So the focus on this reading is really on David, but what about Bathsheba? David's sin affects her the most. Because of David's lust, she has to deal with this unimaginable grief and guilt for which she bears so little responsibility. After losing her husband Uriah, the child that she has with David will eventually die also in subsequent years. So the consequences largely fall on her. That's what's scary about lust in particular. The consequences often fall on others more than on ourselves. Lust is not victimless. We affect others all our time with our lust, even in imperceptible ways. So with the darkness in this story, the trail of death and deceit, lust seems like a hopeless vice. What is the alternative? Well, the virtuous alternative that's offered to us is chastity. And before you recoil at that word, let's get something straight. Chastity does not necessarily mean abstinence. Abstinence is voluntarily choosing to not have sex. But chastity integrates the entire human experience with the gift of our sexuality. Chastity is the opposite of lust because it always recognizes that there's a human person on the other side of our sexual desire and it seeks to honor that person. So single and married people alike can practice chastity. Chastity is really about making the next right choice. One of my favorite definitions for chastity is this. Apprenticeship in self-mastery. Apprenticeship in self-mastery. So we are apprentices. An apprentice is someone who is learning a skill and is given increased responsibility. As an apprentice becomes more skillful, they recognize the power of what they're doing. If they're operating heavy machinery, they're given the privilege of using it as their skill level increases. So the skill precedes the freedom to use something. With sexuality, we are apprentices. It's an enormous and consequential gift. God allows us to share in creation and that overflow of love between a couple creates a new and unique life. Sex is a gift from God. It's one of the best gifts from God. And we should not be ashamed to say that sex is pleasurable and powerful and unifying, but it also needs to be used with responsibility, commitment, and love. Self-mastery is really where our hope resides. Self-mastery is also incredibly challenging. And we see the result of what happens with David when he does not have self-mastery. He commits these atrocious sins against Bathsheba and Uriah and his web of lies ensnares so many others. So lust, whether it's with a screen or with a person, is never a victimless crime or a harmless sin. But here's what makes David's story worth telling. His eventual recognition of the sin. His friend Nathan helps him to see his moral failing and David is grieved deeply. He sets out to atone for his sins, to change his behavior. To reach self-mastery, we may need to repent like David did. We have to own our behavior and acknowledge the power of lust. In my own experience, willpower was not enough to break my habit. I needed help. I needed to want freedom and accountability more than I wanted to let lust hang around in my life. I needed to overcome the shame that told me to hide my bad habits. And it took many years to retrain my brain and body. I needed a trusted partner to help with accountability software. For an entire year, I journaled every day on what I experienced, what triggered lust, what good habits helped, how my prayer life 
affected my temptation level. It was a safe place to share with God. And that journaling helped me to identify the habits and times when I was most likely to be tempted. I read about the effects of pornography on the brain. And for a while, I was part of a support group for men called Samson Society, where we shed light on our struggles, we processed them together, we prayed about them. And I went to the sacrament of confession. Sometimes I felt like a broken record on repeat, but that's part of apprenticeship, identifying our missteps, working to improve them and to correct them. So I share this with you because I feel like it needs to come to light because sin breeds in darkness, it dies in the light. And I know that it is a struggle for so many. We need to expose the problem of lust in our society to stop hiding it. So if you'd like to take some steps in your struggle with lust, we have a few resources that we've put on a page on our website. You can find it at churchnativity.com resources. It's totally confidential, just some steps to help you along your way. So again, that's at churchnativity.com resources. The story of David gives me hope because David experienced change. He couldn't undo the pain, the destruction that he caused. He and many others carried those scars for the rest of their lives. And yet, his sin did not define him. My sin does not define me. Your sin does not define you. Lust is powerful, but it's not as powerful as the God of the universe wearing the same skin and bones as us so that he could show us that the body is a force for good. There is hope when we acknowledge our struggle and we battle for something better. With chastity, there is abundant freedom. Let's pray. God, we come to you in hope for the freedom that you offer us, for the alternative to our struggles, that you call us to honor people, to honor our sexuality in the way that we interact with others, with our world. And so we thank you that you give us that hope of redemption for stories like David's. And so we ask you, help us along that way. Give us your strength. Help us to be vulnerable and courageous and to take those next steps. We have confidence in you that you will lead us there. And we pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.